This is The Coolest Show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level. Information, entertainment, education. Rev here, what got you covered as you hit your destination? Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. Hi everyone, I'm Tamara Tolzo Laughlin, and this is the Coolest Show podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of being here with none other than Heather McTeer Tony. She's the executive director of Bloomberg Philanthropy's Beyond Petrochemicals campaign. Her public leadership began just five minutes ago at the age of 27, when she became the first African American and the first female, as well as the youngest person ever elected to be mayor of Greenville, Mississippi. Under her mayoralty, the city emerged from significant debt and was focused on building sustainable infrastructure in its repairs. In 2014, she was appointed by President Obama to serve as the regional administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency's Southeast region. So the South, y'all. Before joining Beyond Petrochemicals, Heather McTiertoni served in leadership at Moms Clean Air Force and at the Environmental Defense Fund, where she was putting in work. In 2023, she released her book, Before the Streetlights Come On, Black America's Urgent Call for Climate Solutions, published by Broadleaf Books. She holds a bachelor's degree in a number of things, but also was, was granted a bachelor's degree in sociology from Spelman College in Atlanta and a law degree from Tulane University School of Law. It is my sincere pleasure to welcome you uh, today and to bring you back to The Coolest Show. You've been with us before, so it's a good time for us to reconnect with you and talk about your journey of leadership, the challenges you face fighting for community in a Black woman's body as we face the ecological crises, and an increasingly political moment that's actually make or break for where we are in the multi-generational conversation. Welcome back, Heather. It's good to be back. How are you? It's good to be here at The Coolest Show. And of course, you know, I always love talking to you tomorrow. It's just something about just the energy of of us doing this work. So I'm, I'm excited. This is wonderful. Fantastic. I feel the same. I feel like um, the the beauty of seeing you places is knowing I don't have to be there. Like, I, like, I, think, I think one way, one place where we're secretly winning is that there are more of us. And we are right? all the groups. And so right. I, whenever I see you out there, like, look what she's doing. I'm so thrilled there are more of us, like, doing deep. Right. So for folks on, the, on who are only listening to the podcast, there are two Black women here, so there's going to be a lot of hand movements, going to be a lot of sounds, <laughs> maybe a little bit of clicking, but we're smiling, right? So I... <laughs> the whole time. The whole time. And there, there will probably a lot, be a lot of um, subliminal messages people may pick up on, like, <laughs> months down the line because you just said something that I I know we're going to talk about this later, but, you know, seeing each other and knowing that there are more of us knows that there's more of us to take a break and get rest. It's like this messaging. We can see each other out in the space. It's like, oh, you're here. That means I can go. (laughs) We don't have to, we we can take, we can take this thing and shift. So I love it. So for folks who have not yet listened to the previous podcast, which you should Stop now, do, and then listen to this one. Uh, many things have changed in your work life since the last time you joined us. Can you tell us or remind folks who is Heather McTeer, Tony? 
Ooh. Well, right now, Heather McTiertoni is hydrating, drinking water, um, yes. and a mama uh, getting ready for the holiday season. So uh, that, you know, is, is just this, this space of life that I think we all have to embrace where we are because that leads what we do in our work. Um, and so my kids have gotten older. You know, my husband and I are in, enjoying life just that much more. And uh, I am tra- I have transitioned. You know, I think the last time I was at the coolest show, I was at Mom's Clean Air Force. And since that time, uh, I have not only written a book, uh, uh, moved to a role as being the vice president of community engagement at the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, and from there, I have uh, transitioned now over to being the executive director for Beyond Petrochemicals, which is a Bloomberg initiative. So really getting deeper, I think, into the work and finding things that are even more ambitious, right? Even bigger and that much more important to have a presence of environmental justice communities, people of color, and drawing the lines between what has been our past experience and what will be our future in climate action. So those things excite me. Um, but for the regular folks out there, y'all, I am going to Target and Walmart and getting last minute gifts, just like a lot of folks out there. So. Well, on that, on that note, can you talk, since you started to talk about the evolution of your work and really going to depth. Can you talk about who your community is in this moment? Because with those, you come from a lot of traditions and they're all moving yeah. at the same time. So how do you find your North star for accountability and how, like who are the communities that you know, if things are going better there, then your job is going well. You know how we have this saying, um, I, I am my ancestors wildest dreams. Okay. And that is, I think the root of what keeps me grounded is knowing um, that I I am not here on my own accord. There are so many people who have been doing the work of social justice, environmental justice, um, climate justice, and really bringing into account what has been the presence of, of humanity at large. Um, when we think about what our future of, of climate action is now. So, I, you know, my community is goes back to the people that I'm from. I'm from the Mississippi Delta. Uh, I'm a Southern girl. I was born and raised in Greenville, Mississippi. My parents came to Mississippi as a part of the voters' rights movement. So uh, my dad is a retired civil rights attorney. My mom is a retired school teacher, um, justice and education are profound in my life and in, I think in the life of my kids now as well. So um, I think about that in terms of who are the people and experts that we should listen to when it comes to climate action. Um, because for a long time, we only thought of experts in the environmental field as those who had the the degrees behind their name. They had the PhDs, the MSDs, the all of the Ds, and they came from these top institutions. And while there is such value in that, what was missing was the value of the the GSD. And we're just going to say get stuff done degree uh, <laughs> that comes from uh, the lived experience of people in community. And That's so, Bill Hardnox gives those out, but absolutely, you know. It, it, it comes and, and there's such value in that. So that's my community. 
You know, my community is people who are not only um, the experts in in science and technology and policy. Um, they're the people who live on the corner of like, um, you know, First Street and MLK, and you know, they Miss Jenkins has been living there for forty years, and she can tell you not only what is the health and welfare of each and every family on that street. She can talk about the transition of the street. She can tell you how the asphalt has lifted. And where it's gone down because of different uh, climate crises. She knows how many times the floods, like all of these are things that we have to count with the the data that we learn um, in order to help us understand what are the things we need to do to reduce pollution in our communities and set up communities to be successful as we know the climate crisis continues to really, I think, bear down on us. So you know that that's the that's the the long way of saying well, the community is everybody, mm. especially those with lived experience. We tend to ask that question because it's as black people and folks in community, you know it really matters where you came from, who your people right. are. It helps people start to form a context around what they hear from you. So I think it's important for you to spell it out. Can you talk so you have moved through some roles that are hard for people to understand if they're not already deeply in the work? Can you talk a little bit about, like, I call I call that kind of work like fence hopping, right? Like, you, you know, the skill of hopping the fence is looking back and being able to bring some folks with you, but not just through your experience, by flagging, like, here's what's happening on the other side and still being able to communicate. So what do you see as your role as someone who is stacking experiences that are not um, the kinds that, that everyone has? no matter how passionate they are about environment. So, you know, what's your role in drawing a connection between your everyday life, your professional experiences, and your community? Oh, that brought back some memories because you said fence hopping. And the first thing that came in my mind is like how it, it, as a kid in the South, there's like a chain link fence and maybe between a park you're not supposed to be in and somebody hops the fence, but somebody holds it down right. and they hold it down so that when everybody else is coming across, you don't get caught on those little barbs. Yeah. <laughs> you're trying to get over into the place. And yeah. I see that, I know you know, that bosses. there you go. You know, I think I think that's like my that's the role that I play. It's 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 being able to hold it in a way that people can see what's on the other side. I am not a climate scientist. I ran away from the science buildings on campus. <laughs> I um, am deeply vested in people. I love to know how people uh, move within community, how to translate uh, language and, uh, and and speak to people in the space where they are. That's my happy space. But, you know, then there was this sciencey stuff over here. And I would always say, like, I'm not an environmentalist. I, I don't study molecules. I don't know what's going on and all the different degrees of Celsius. Like, that was white people stuff. And that was not stuff that was resonating in the Mississippi Delta. But what I began to learn was it was because I didn't see myself in it. Right. And if you don't see yourself in a space, then automatically, no, you won't think that you're in that. It's part of the reason why I wrote before the streetlights came on, come on. Okay. Because I didn't see myself in climate until like Lisa Jackson came to Greenville, Mississippi and said, you know, this is environmental justice work. No, it's not. 
And to this day, we still laugh about that because it was one of the things that really pushed me into the work. And it pushed me there because I became very upset, frustrated, and angry that people of color, Black people, particularly in the Mississippi Delta, had been on the face of what environmental injustices look like, but had not benefited financially, had not benefited socially, and not had not had had not benefited uh, in terms of the innovations that were coming forward to even be a part of a climate future, a clean energy future. So I had to figure it out and figure out um, how can I, in that sort of fence hopping scenario, how can I get to this other side? But at the same time, explain to people that, you know, we're we're all here together. Like we all need to come into this conversation because we're all impacted. And I honestly think that the more we normalize conversations around climate, connect it to our everyday experiences and remove the silos from what is environment, environmental policy, what is climate policy, and just break it down to kitchen table conversations. That's the, that is the way that we're now able to come up with solutions that are not only beneficial, but I I really believe are innovative in a way that they can really make a difference um, for our future. Um, That's what excites me about this work. So I hear you saying in your own experience that not being able to see folks who look like you, who have your background, who come from the places where you come from, it was a barrier to entry. And your role is making sure that that doesn't continue. Because I can tell you, you know, I'm a multi-generational environmentalist, uh, a person who is from a different part of the South where we work the land. So, you know, part of working the land is taking care of it. You know, my, my, you know, my hero is George Washington Carver. You want to have a really long conversation about the peanut? I'm your girl. You know, like, and I, like, and all, because, because, because we're at a moment where people are talking about regenerative agriculture. I'm like, he wrote about regenerative agriculture. He had a relationship with every A and M university, and a, and a, all the HBCUs. Yeah, like, that, that, that's their support. foundation. So, like, so I, so I feel like this is the history you're talking about. Like, if he was working Absolutely. with Ford, who who is putting out their electric car, you know, as we speak, and he was working with them on alternatives to fossil fuel, like we are not new to this, like in a deep way. And if we had done any of the things he said to do about soil or the use of um, sort of specific crops to take out phosphorus. Like that's not stuff that you have to get a degree from anywhere to do because if you care about the soil and you love it and it takes care of you and it brings you your food, then you know how it works. Like the seed banks, seed banks are more important than actual banks, but that's like a whole nother podcast. So I just wanted to like lift oh, up that, that you, like, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about if you don't see it, you don't know that it's there. And so I appreciate your role in demonstrating how common, how casual, how relaxed, and how regular our experience is in the environment, whether you whether you call yourself a tree hugger or environmentalist or not. Well I, I think we should dig into that a little bit more because you're absolutely right. It's 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 not just that we haven't seen ourselves because we've had all of these examples that have been prevalent in our history, right? It's that we also allow other people to interpret that vision of ourselves in this space. So it's not that we weren't showing up. We've been there. It's just we didn't call it the same thing. I, I, I grew up in the Delta, just like, you know, you you knew 
I, I knew when the river was going to go up and down, not because I was sitting in some classroom and talking about river flows. This just because the cousins that were in Chicago told us it snowed. And every year when it was a lot of snow, you knew the water was going to come down south. Right. You knew when the river was going up because the casinos were going up, like working the land was a part of what I think everybody understood in this space because Fannie Lou Hamer, it came from a county right next to mine. And so seeing things like crop dusters fly over fields that I had classmates where their parents worked in, it, it was very present and real. But I had such problem when I got older to to recognize that somebody else defined what that was for people in my community. And they didn't put environmentalists next to that definition. So even though we were doing a lot of this stuff, it was in our history. It was really literally in our blood and our blood is in the soil. We allow somebody else to define it. And so redefining now. So that we all are seeing ourselves. Like you said, we, we are in this. It is us. We are it, I think, is the normalization that I hope we're all bringing to this conversation. Fantastic. And I'm really glad you talked about your book before the streetlights come on. I feel like one of the things I enjoyed about it is the idea that it's an important reflection on the culture underneath the work of climate and environment. And I think we should dig into a little bit more. So in our community, there's a certain cultural significance connected to the phrase before the streetlights come on. Can you explain to the audience why you chose that title and whose voice is that in? Because, you know, it really depends on who's who's telling you to get in before the lights come on. Oh, boy. I, I, I tell you the truth. This is one of those moments we are definitely using a lot of hand motions here. So first, I got to say, you know, I, I, I appreciate you and thank you for, you know, writing an endorsement on the book. Cause it's like your name and your thoughts are there too. And, and that to me speaks so vividly to what it means. And one of those voices in Before the Streetlights, because when you think about when we say that, that is this call to action. You got to do something before the streetlights come on is a phrase that's actually a verb. Because when we hear that phrase in our community, if it is coming from our elders or guardians, mom, dad, grandma, you know there's an expectation to action and you have a certain time to do that action in. But there's also this, that voice that's coming from peers, friends, cousins, the people that you're playing with at the same time that could be also, you know, interpreted as a call to action. So if my cousin said uh, street lights, then that's a call to action. We all have to go in. Like if somebody is not inside when the lights come on, everybody suffers a consequence. And that community that raised us, that community, that call to action is a response that really is connected to climate. Mm -hmm. um, we can make that connection because when we begin to see climate action as this collective, you have to do something now, which I think has been part of the missing link. Yeah. You know, that, where there's some urgency. That's where we're like, oh, it's not just me. It's you. It's everybody. We all need to have some action or there will be a consequence. And in the book, it's the thing that spoke to me the most about the urgency of climate action, but also how to talk to people about it and how to have something very relatable 
that can normalize this conversation for us? As you alluded to here and in the book, you know, Audre Lorde says that, you know, there are no single issue struggles because we do not live single issue lives. And mm-hmm. I think what's important is that you are living, the living, walking the walk and translating through your own experience the idea that, you know, which has to be repeated for the people in the back so regularly that we as Black people have interior lives, which are so often excluded from the conversation about like, we're not just what people get from us. And so people can imagine that we live at the superficial level at which they are dealing with us because of the sections. So when we cross over intersectionally in our work by caring about people and planet, by caring about police brutality and health, by caring about air quality, water quality, and what's on cable. You know, I think, I think there are moments when it's important for us, like you did it just jumping into the conversation when you talked about your experience of going, needing to do some shopping after this call. Like, like the thing you're doing every day, moving around millions of dollars in favor of communities that are not supported because they're in the middle of a struggle that also requires an economic lens is doing just that. Because you can care about trees and people, you can care about species and air quality. You, frankly, if you don't, what's I mean, I've yet to find a species that that is at this level <laughs> that can live without air quality that is healthy. So, so I feel like bringing in your experience and what led you to going into Mom's Clean Air Force to and through EDF into this new role on petrochemicals. There's so much intersectionality just in that trajectory of your own work. In the book, you talked about that and you specifically dug into institutions, like Black institutions. You spoke about the connection between community and religious practices. You talked about 75% of African-Americans that will that say that religion is a part important part of their lives and that even when the environmental movement itself can be agnostic. So can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to dig in on the power of those institutions and what it means to your environmentalism? I, I think that these are institutions that are, you know, like you said, they're they're always around us. They are so intersectional. Social justice is such a pivotal and connected piece of who we are as African Americans that we can't disconnect. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, but sometimes it gets cloudy around what these what these connections are. So. <clears throat> Let's take the church, for example. Um, The church is a huge part of social justice, but also has this opportunity, and I think is really beginning to to wake up to the role that it has in climate and environmental justice. Uh, How many times have we repeated excuse me, the 23rd Psalm as a part of an Easter speech that we had to do, and some kids still have to do. And, you know, we repeat, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we we talk about laying down in green pastures. But if you are a kid from Detroit, like, do you know what a green pasture is? Or like even a kid from Mississippi Delta, I'm not necessarily going to go out and lay in a pasture because I know it's cow patties down there, fire. (laughs) Like, these are the things that are in my head. But when you go every Sunday, that's not the image that you have. Mm-hmm. The point that I try to draw out for folks is you have an image. 
Like you, you're, you're talking about uh, things that are clearly connected to nature, that are connected to health, that are connected to wealth. The very imagery that we use and have come up with in the church is one that is reflective of not only our faith and survival, but also our responsibility to be good stewards over what God has given us to be good stewards over. So I think of it like uh, my mom is a, she's a retired school teacher. So I, I think of it like, you know, you have a building, a building principal, and then you got a janitor, right? Both of them have sets of keys to every door in that building. That's right. But the building principal is the one that is making the decisions. The janitor is going in and following the directions, making sure that everything is clean, restored, that we're not overusing resources and the kids have not stuffed all of the toilet paper down the toilets, right? That's the janitor's responsibility. (laughs) We in the church often act like the building principal when in reality we're the janitor. We're the ones that are supposed to be overseeing what God has given us on this planet uh, and being good stewards over it, but we just haven't felt empowered or we have allowed evangelicals in, in their sense, oftentimes white evangelicals, to put this space of dominionism. And that's not who we are. So I, yeah, I, I love to step into that. I love to talk scripture with folks who are thinking, you know, well, there is no connection. I don't quite think so, because um, Dr. King was assassinated at a sanitation workers march in Memphis, Tennessee. Men saying that they are not trash. That's where he died. So how much more, and, and that was organized by church. Mm-hmm. How much more and how much frustrating is it that we are still today having to deal with Black communities saying that we are not trash, that we should not be the places where the landfill is located. We should not be the places where you want to put your next petrochemical facility because you need some more Tupperware. We should not be the place where we are locating all of these polluting entities. Dr. King died saying that we're not trash, yet here we are still trying to exclaim that to industries that want to put us in a trash trash place. The church stepped up then, and I think we should call on the church step up now and make those connections. Well, you made some powerful points there. You made me think about Catherine Coleman Flowers' work on waste in Alabama mm. and and how the revelation is that all that is environment and climate. Like, you know, yes. I think the fact that like we have to think about these things more closely together and the siloing, especially, I also thought you made a great point about um, what you called uh, in the book, the, the black church as the sleeping giant and what it's going to take for us to wake up the sleeping giant. I have some question about that, largely in that I'm not sure given our history in the church, like recently I, I convened a meeting that was in right proximity to the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, which has been blown up a number of times. I feel like, mm-hmm. is it that the church is sleeping? Like, is that, like, or is it that the church is hiding? It's potential. And mm. I ask that because I think as a person who recognizes that, you know, there's so many movements born in the basement of a church. Yes. Just like the just like the great singer you hear today was probably on somebody's choir before before they had a name that people knew. Like we it, the church has been an incubator because it's a community hub and it's a space. As you work yes. on petrochemicals, which I'm gonna ask you to break down, what are we talking about when we talk about petrochemicals for folks who might not know? 
is the church a sleeping giant? Is the church dozing off? Mm, mm, that's a, I think the church has been napping for a little while. <laughs> 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 the, the church has been nappy, but you, you know, you make a, a great point about the church being an incubator because every social action comes back every, we, we, we can't silo. So every single part of our being comes to center in these places of worship, these places of safety and these places of comfort, even if they have not been safe. You know, um, when Mother Emanuel was considered to be a safe space in South Carolina and they were the the place where you had such a horrific mass shooting, um, it still did not take away from it being that safe space okay. that we all um, want to at least think and call um, place that we can gather and have conversations. So I think that, again, it's, it's not necessarily that... Um, <clears throat> The church is hiding. I think the church has definitely uh, needs needs to come out of some napping spaces and allow that th- those those conversations to really rise up. And it's happening. You know, you have Green the Church and Reverend Carroll, who is doing some amazing work across the southeast and and in California, and really invigorating the church to speak up and teaching every opportunity that they have. Um, that's just one example. In across Louisiana, um, Rise St. James, St. John, um, the the Baptist Parish, all of these organizations are faith community are faith led organizations. Then uh, I think about the um, People's Justice Movement in Alabama uh, with Reverend Michael Malcolm, Interfaith Power and Light. You know, we can name a lot of different organizations that are urging and sort of nudging the church to wake up from the nap. Uh, and, And where we can help is by giving, I think, younger people who are coming up in the church and are identifying with these social issues, um, climate being one of them, giving them the wherewithal to ask questions and do that in a safe space in the church, bring their concerns and have those be a part of ministry and to make them feel welcome in doing that. I think that's how we really allow this next generation to step into leadership, both within faith and in the climate movement. And we're just talking right now about the black church. I think the same thing though goes for every single faith. So whether you are black and Islamic or you are, um, Christian, Catholic, and and Latino, like the same thing should be happening across the board, across all faiths. Yeah, whether you're on your green dean, I mean, we, are you? I heard you dropping names like uh, Reverend Ambrose. I, mm-hmm. Ambrose. I think of Heber Brown in Baltimore, bringing food, yeah. bringing food up and down the I ninety five like my grandmother used to do to make sure black churches make food, not just distribute food. Like the uh, yes. the Creation Care Program at Interfaith Power and Light. These are multi multinational, multi-geographic, multi, uh, multi-faith groups doing a lot of work. Um, Dianu is a whole climate-focused group of, of people. They're climate elders. They're just so many diff- There's so much variety in the conversation that come from the tradition of the climate-requiring community, like as a part, in order for it to function. So incubating social justice movements is a thing that happens in spaces where people gather together and a faith space space is doing that. So I'm um, I'm 
dialogue. And Absolutely. And it, it's the place where you can like it, it again, it intersects because the same place that you had, that we have the, those, those meetings uh, <laughs> at the base of the church is usually the same place that the um, Greek sororities and fraternities will have their meeting in that same place. Yes. The same place you have a Jack and Jill meeting. Like, <laughs> it is Not across the board. We're giving you a free room and maybe some rolls. <laughs> so we have all of these meetings in the same place. These these issues should intersect at the same time as well. And I think that falls back on us. We have to use every single organization and every institution and affiliation that we have to raise the issue. There's nothing that says we the same issue that we're talking about with respect to the black churches institution. That is the same issue that we should talk about with HBCUs and see how HBCUs are playing, how our Greek fraternities and sororities, every single one of them should have climate actions, should have social actions affiliated with climate and environmental justice, which, you know, goes over to the other um institutions that have been prevalent within the Black community for years. We can care them, it, it becomes a part of, I think, us to wake up and get everybody up from this nap to say, hey, here's the issue that we can be a powerful element on if we just activate. And what, one thing I'm hearing in there underneath the specific aligned groups is that unaffiliated people, unhoused people, mm. there are folks who are not caught in a social safety net that are in fact caught in a church. They are caught by people who put their hand out to be in community in a church. So I'm hearing a call for folks that are aligned by mission, aligned by principle, aligned by proximity, aligned by location, aligned by education, but also a call for unaligned folks. Yes. The only time you'll find them is is uh, when they need some prayer or they need some food or a place to sleep in those places that will take you no matter what else you have going on. And so I Absolutely. think it's a powerful line of thinking there about how we bring climate into all of those moments, especially because it continues to be a threat. People will call on a church. They will go to community spaces when there's a fire or a flood or there's an extreme event or the power is out, a place where they know they'll be accepted. And so if we're not taking climate to those spaces, we are failing. I want to talk a little bit more about your work in Beyond Petrochemicals. So first, what are petrochemicals? I just want to make sure that for folks who might have just heard that you were on a podcast and or or just listening for looking for a podcast. What are we talking about? I'm so glad you asked that question because we talk about what beyond petrochemicals. I can go and play, but what is that? Spell it. Yes, yes, we're right. talking what about gasoline, but not just gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So petrochemicals are just, they're simply oil chemicals, oil and chemicals. It's, it's exactly what the word says. It is the base that you need to make plastics. And the reason why this is such a big deal is because, you know, as we're all talking about a fossil free future. That's right. And let me know if I'm getting into the climate talk because we can break this down basically not using as much oil and gas and getting our our entire planet in a position where we're all continuing to suffer. The oil and gas industry has got to figure out where they're going next. They've got to figure out what's going to be the moneymaker that happens after, you know, everybody is moving off of fossil fuels. But what a lot of people don't know is that they are investing heavily in what's called petrochemicals, which is still oil. 
It is simply oil used to create a chemical that you need for plastics. My best, my favorite example is, does anybody not know what spaghetti looks like? I know what spaghetti looks like. I hope you know what spaghetti looks like. Most of the listeners here probably know what spaghetti looks like. But why in the world do you need that little plastic window on a spaghetti box to tell you what the spaghetti looks like, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's this unnecessary plastics. And the petrochemical industry is banking on the fact that we are so reliant on plastics that they can create 120 more facilities in the United States of America in predominantly black and brown communities to make you some more plastics. So this is like the next iteration of what could be a cancer alley that we're trying to prevent. We don't need more huge chemical facilities that are creating a polluting impact uh, and, and footprint on already overburdened communities. And, and I can tell you the places where they are planning to put these facilities, that they have purchased property, they've gotten permits, mm-hmm. it's Texas, it's South Texas, it's Port Arthur, it's in the, the chemical corridor, it's in Houston around Manchester in the shipping area, um, it's in uh, Louisiana in St. John Parish, in um, St. James Parish, where they have been fighting back against these facilities. It's in the Ohio River Valley. It's in East Palestine, in Ohio. Um, So these are the places where we have to fight this. I I think I'm really happy that you laid this out because it sounds like, uh, I have explained it, that petrochemicals, uh, plastics are oil and gas, a side hustle. There you go. (laughs) No, we're we're at a moment in the movement where we have to recognize that the side hustle is about to become the main hustle. Because as we have named it and claimed it, as COP has found a way to finally shimmy towards the truth that everyone has known since the first COP, that fossil fuels is in fact the, in the middle of the bullseye for what we need yes. to do to end, like we have to end the era of fossil fuels to continue the reign of human beings on this, on this, on our earth home. So if we have gotten enough momentum behind that, the side hustle emerges as a way to keep doing the same thing under another guise. So I think it's really powerful that you pointed out that part of that plan is strategically locating in Black communities, which doubles down on the underlying principle that our communities don't matter. So that while we are taking away food and when we are making sure that there aren't any trees, we're making plans for zoning and permitting of petrochemical plants along the same lines as every other thing that's ever poisoned our people and our community in these lands. So can you talk a little bit more about the catastrophic environmental and health consequences associated with this kind of generational targeting? Now, I think you you just, you hit it right at it. You said hot side hustle, not, and it made me, I know we're on the coolest show, so I can say this here. You know, it's like, yep, this is the side chick that is definitely about to become the main chick <laughs> and, and, and has plans to completely renovate. I mean, a whole thing, whole thing. (laughs) And it's it's wild because not only is it sitting on the same footprint, and and think about this for a second. If you look at Louisiana, and there was a a really good Guardian, I think, no, sorry, an Atlantic piece that was done a few years ago that showed the footprint of the oil and gas industry right now, right now where plants are, are, um, 
are, are seated is on top of plantations that were prevalent throughout the Southeast. Um, and not only on top of them, I mean, there's they did a mapping that showed the outline of these plantations and the, how it, it fits the same exact footprint of the uh, chemical companies, the oil and gas companies across Southeast Louisiana. And so, you know, generations of people who have been in, in some way either enslaved or um, <clears throat> a part of the sharecropping system, or now in the labor system uh, of a place in the land that not only has polluted them physically, spiritually, financially, but also environmentally. And I think we should also think through like the indigenous tribes that are in these same footprints and spaces. Okay. So the health impacts that come along, come a, come in addition to this are not only like the physical um, issues that we have to deal with from being in this space that's been so embargoed and, and just uh, so devastating to our persons, the emissions, that's the bad stuff that comes out of the smoke, like yeah. smokestacks from these spaces that's that right. cause um, things like eczema, cancer, asthma. So we're seated in places where folks got to go and take more sick days than they would in any other community. Um, and to top that off, these are also located in places where we're seeing more extreme weather events as a result of the climate crisis. So right. more and stronger hurricanes that are coming across in these very same pathways. So if you are in Port Arthur, Texas, where they had like three storms coming back to back. They could not rebuild a school fast enough in order to prepare for the next storm. But in, in addition to all of that, they are also facing petrochemical facilities, the um, burnoffs and the chemicals that are coming from those facilities, having to shelter in place, the chemical fires that come, and there's a hurricane and a tornado. And let's not mention the fact that um, they're just now getting broadband. I mean, like all of these things come together and they impact the overall health and well-being. And it makes it so important for us to be able to say no more. Let's let, let's stop this madness where it is um, and not put additional facilities in these places, but that we don't need these additional facilities, period. The facilities that currently exist in the United States, um, not only uh, are not really all up to speed, but they're not even doing what they're supposed to be doing with respect to enforcement standards, um, making sure they're not polluting the places where they are right now. So there's got to be some controls. And part of those controls need to be the voices of the people who are living in these spaces. Um, you, you were touching on something I want to ask a little more about. So you talked a little bit about um, these petrochemical facilities being a bad idea, being something communities have rejected and said they don't want outright. Uh, one, because the history of manufacturing is full of communities that have lived and died saying, we don't want this, don't force it on us. It becomes the main thing. And then they pay for your health care and then your burial, right? So I think mm. in, in a history of manufacturing across this country, there are so many lessons to learn about what happens when oh, industry wow. decides what goes where without talking to the people who live there. Some of the other players in this conversation 
if you're bringing resources to bear for folks to be able to fight, who are the folks who are allies to communities making these fight, making these site fights, these calls for care, um, the preservation of human health and safety and land and species? Who are the folks that can show up alongside of a community with resources or without resources to call out either the protection of a community or the neglect that it's facing? It's one of the reasons why I really respected Bloomberg for stepping into this space, um, because Michael Bloomberg, you were able to, I think, not only take and draw from the experiences of the Beyond Coal campaign mm-hmm. and and really stopping coal in this in the U.S. and understanding the public health impact that came with that. Uh, he also had the ability to sort of see around a corner and say, uh, they're taking money out of this. Where is it going? Mm-hmm. And investing money uh, specifically to really provide capacity to frontline communities that were already in this fight. I think that made a huge statement to say, you know, you're not in this by yourself. And it is and it's important. We see you. We value people, planet, place, um, and and that there are resources that can come to bear. So that's one of the things that made me excited and say, okay, you know, this, this let's let's do this. Let's bring people together, and let's talk about how do we stop this next uh, issue that could be really a backwards movement for all the the climate progress that we've made. I think another is the public health institutions. You know, there's a lot of research that's happening on what is the cumulative public health impact. Mm-hmm. And the key word in that sentence is cumulative. And for Black and brown communities, cumulative means every part of what's happening in that community and what it means for your climate and environmental health. So the fact that you know somebody got shot on the corner last week in Memphis, Tennessee, and I still live in, Memphis, in in Mississippi, so I'm not far from Memphis, and I'm in that news circuit. The fact that that they have had a shooting there, that is not excluded from how we think about what's happening with TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and pipelines coming through the community. Like all of these are a part of the cumulative health, and studying that is a powerful resource that can be put at the fingertips of communities all over this country. That is an ally. And I hope we're able to really draw on the science, the data, the policies that are being developed, not just in the United States, but around the world to show how there are alternatives. These are things that we can put at the fingertips of communities to help stress how important it is when they say, we don't want this in our community. Here's why. Mm-hmm. The researchers, um, the data analysts, the lawyers, the litigation, uh, a lot of folks are thinking about, you know, New York and what's happening with Trump. Realize that, you know, Tish James is up there also suing Pepsi for the plastics and the problems that uh, it has caused in that community. She signed on to a letter for Famosa in Louisiana to talk about what state AGs can do across the lines of their states to support one another, but also to remove pollution from communities. That is powerful. That is an ally. And I think we've got to look in these spaces to give them more power. Yeah, especially in a moment when, you know, trying to get composting in New York is about the most thuggish thing you can try to pull off in New York State. So <laughs> I, I, when you were talking about the Tennessee Valley Authority, 
Uh, people, I think if you have ever enjoyed uh, Three Six Mafia, then you probably mm. should know something about the Tennessee Valley Authority because they're actually regulating the space that makes it possible for you to be knuck if you buck. I just, I just want to draw a line and no, no. connect, connect the culture and the climate. There we go. Because, because these things, what I hear you talking about behavioral support, psychosocial uh, capacity, whether or not there's an incidence of crime, if you have enough uh, basic materials so that people can go about their day without living in scarcity. Those are the kinds of issues that matter to whether there's an energy regulator that cares about the Toxic Substances Control Act, like the, the death of Tosca, being able to call people out when they're developing more chemicals a day that could possibly be regulated. That stuff matters. It is a part of the culture. It's why babies are not healthy. They're born underweight. It's why some babies are not born. It's why kids have asthma that carries them into their future and caps the kinds of activities they can be involved in if they don't have access to health care. So there's just nothing different about the fights that we are in. The question is, who's telling you you are invited to the conversation, which is why it's so powerful to have you uh, here in this moment speaking to the culture about the climate and the ways we're already been pulled into this moment. So I want to move into my final question around the strategy that you are employing to connect these kinds of allies in the moment that we're in. What is up next for you and what's on your horizon of priorities for petrochemical work? Because when you started to talk about the Ohio River Valley, I think about folks who fought for air quality before the ethane cracker that went in the Ohio River Valley because of their experience being poisoned before. You know, there's a book when smoke ran like water that was about an entire community that got, um, that lost members because of a, a fog when the air converted over and hovered over people, poisoning them with the materials that came from the factory they, that most people in that town worked in. So like the stories from coast to coast, city to city, as we look at the climate future and decarbonizing, as people start to revitalize mining in a moment as though you know, like just enough people died off so that that sounds like a thing you could say in polite company that we're going to open up a mine. What's important for people to think about as petrochemicals becomes the side hustle for the next thing? Like, cause the second we, you know, draw a bullseye around this, there's no reason to believe that there isn't another thing to be looking at. So what should people be looking out for? Well, absolutely. Well, first, you know, off the top, we already know 2024 is going to be a beast because there's so much that's happening. One into 2024, like we are really excited about some of the stuff that EPA uh, is already doing. In with the they've they've released the Tosca list of risk assessment chemicals. This is really important, folks, to to think about. You know, this is one of those nook if you bump bug moments. Like this is one of those TVA. Like let's we need everybody involved because this is an opportunity to uh, really speak to petrochemicals that have been impacting our communities. Hip Hop Caucus, Moms Clean Air Force, Beyond Plastics, and Beyond Petrochemicals supporting all of these groups help to make sure that vinyl chloride is on that list. Vinyl chloride is the stuff that blew up in East Palestine, Ohio. And because of the action of listeners to this podcast, to activists, organizers, families all around this country, EPA is now in the process of reviewing, but it doesn't stop there. Like we need people to provide comments and we will certainly be supporting 
all of our organizations as they are gathering this information, gathering health assessment data that they can provide to the agency so that they are assured throughout this process, community voices are heard. Vinyl chloride is the stuff you'd make PVC pipes with. That's right. You talk about these things. If it isn't rusty, it's PVC. There you go. There you go. But it's also something that causes cancer. So, you know, we need to look at what is allowed. Are there alternatives? There are. And how we can make sure that these alternatives are not only included in our communities, but that we're starting at the top with the policy and say, just don't, don't, don't use it. That's right. It, it is similar to how, you know, like a couple of, a couple of weeks, a month, a month or so now ago, where um, FDA finally after years decided we don't need to put vinyl chlor, um, we don't need to put formaldehyde in black perm products. Like we're. Yes. Or, I mean, that's the top, the polite version. It, is, it was in maxi pads forever for no reason. They could come up with no reason why formaldehyde should be inserted into the uh, a woman's body or in a womb. Other than that, it was already in a factory. So this yeah, is- the, These are the chemicals that have overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly been impacting black and brown communities. At Beyond Petrochemicals, we're excited to be able to support our partners as they're taking on these fights. So 2024, definitely look out for- what's happening and how you can support around stopping uh, not only these these um, toxic chemicals like vinyl chloride, we're excited about that one, but specific sites that we need to make sure do not go anywhere across this country. Uh, we encourage folks to, to stay attuned and abreast of the latest uh, at our website. We've got beyondpetrochemicals.org. Of course, we know our friends at Hip Hop Caucus and The Coolest Show are always going to be on top of it and sharing the latest of what we're working on. But I would be remiss if I did not say this. The thing we need everybody to do is to engage and vote because voting makes a difference. Putting people in position to make decisions over our life every single day, the lives of our children, of our communities, is the make or break thing that will determine how all of this plays out. So it is so important that everyone not only vote, they encourage other folks to vote. They are engaged at from the highest level to school board, city clerk's office, every single uh, place where you can vote and to get engaged in the community. I hope folks take that message to heart in 2024. And, and I want to underscore that you're talking to climate people because black people vote. Absolutely. We vote like America counts on it. So so just to point out that that that, that, that <laughs> heartfelt request from Heather was to climate people. If you're reading the New York Times at this moment, thinking that you've already read about us, so you don't need to do anything. She's talking to you. You want to get out there. You want to make sure that you're voting for the dog catcher, the alderman, the zoning board, the election board, and the president. If you're into that. Oh, if, you're, if you're into this thing, not healthy democracy for a healthy planet or whatever. You know, so if that's your jam, you like living on Earth, you should probably get out there and vote. So I want to fully support that. Uh, how can people follow you as a thought leader if they want to find you on whatever the heck is going on with the Internet? My most The thing I have the most fun on is TikTok. I love it. I think it's an amazing platform. I am on just about every platform. Uh, TikTok, 
Twitter X, whatever it's called now, uh, threads, Facebook, Instagram, and my at is at Heather McTier Tony. So my full name, if you put that in, you will pull me up. And I hope y'all engage. I, I really do. I love talking. Uh, you know, I love seeing you out in places and, and there's more of us out here, right? <laughs> well, it has been my pleasure to have our guest today, Heather McTier Tony, Executive Director of Beyond Petrochemicals and the author of Before the Streetlights Come On. Black America's Urgent Call for Climate Solutions. I'm Tamara Tolls O'Laughlin, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you, Heather. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.